welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 10. Just as a reminder, every day I read from one chapter of God's Word. So today we're going to read from Exodus chapter 10. And then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and theology. And my goal is is to do these episodes in about 5 to 20 minutes. So let's get to our reading today from Exodus chapter 10. And Exodus chapter 10 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen, from the day they came to earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the people go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? And so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and with our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord Lord be with you if I ever if ever I let you and your little ones go look you have some evil purpose in mind no go the men among you and serve the Lord for that is what you are asking and they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence and then the Lord said to Moses stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land all that the hail has left and so Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor will ever be seen again. They covered the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruits of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. 
And then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God, against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. And so he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with which we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to them, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is our reading today from Exodus chapter 10. The seventh plague was hail, and after the last hailstone melted, God repeated his ultimatum to Pharaoh along with the consequences if he failed to surrender the land in Exodus 10, 3-6. Well, this demand was very simple. He told Pharaoh to set his people free so they could serve the Lord. God's threat was simple too. If Pharaoh refused to submit, then his land would be destroyed, and Moses prophesied total destruction. Locusts would cover the land, blanketing every visible surface and devouring every living plant. The Egyptians had already suffered the loss of their livestock and the damage of their crops, and now the locusts would consume what little was left. And when this terrible plague came, it was not a random act of nature, but a deliberate act of divine justice. God was judging Pharaoh for his sinful pride. He asked almost with a sense of astonishment in verse 3, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? It was a good question. How long is it going to take? Pharaoh had already suffered seven plagues, but he still hadn't made any real spiritual progress. Back in chapter 1, when Pharaoh made the Israelites his slaves, the scripture says literally that he humbled them with forced labor in Exodus 1.11. And now Pharaoh himself was about to be humbled, which of course, this is exactly what Pharaoh needed. He had the opportunity to humble himself by letting the people of God go, but if he continued to rebel, then eventually God would do the humbling for him. The choice was up to him, humility or humiliation. Now, every single human being today uh, faces the same question. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then it goes on to make the obvious application in 1 Peter 5.6. Humble yourselves thereby under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Well, we know Pharaoh never humbled himself. He was unwilling and unable to do so because he was a hardened sinner. And yet, in some mysterious way, even his hard heart was part of the sovereign plan of God. 
And so Exodus 10 begins with these words in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. And throughout our study of Exodus, we've seen that the plagues were part of the plan of God. But there's a further mystery in the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We sometimes think of the plagues as as God's strategy for softening Pharaoh's heart. Well, that's true in part. In the end, the deadly plagues were what persuaded him to let God's people go. But there's another way to view the relationship between Pharaoh's hard heart and Egypt's terrible plagues. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to multiply the plagues. From the very beginning, God did not intend to send just one or two plagues, but all ten of them. Hardening Pharaoh's heart was part of that plan. The harder his heart became, the more plays God sent against Egypt, getting more glory for the glory and honor of God alone. You know, God received this glory in the hearts and homes of his people. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, the answer is to perform miraculous signs in Egypt. And why did he perform these miraculous signs? Well, the Lord said to Moses in verse 2 of our chapter today, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, the reason God plagued the Egyptians was so the Israel would have something to tell their grandchildren. Every child loves a good story, and this story was more entertaining than most. The whole Exodus is an epic adventure. It has everything, a wicked tyrant, an unlikely hero, a bitter conflict, a daring rescue, a national triumph, a spiritual quest, a happy ending, lots of miracles for special effect. What a story. This story even has comic events. Verse 2 even hints at this when it describes how he dealt with Pharaoh. Literally, he does not say, I, I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, but... Instead, but I made sport of the Egyptians. In sending his plagues against Pharaoh, God was toying with the Egyptians. It was all part of the grand purpose of the Lord, which was to give the Israelites something to tell their grandchildren. And as entertaining as the story was, it had a serious purpose of helping the Israelites know their God. Verse 2 tells us this when it says, I am doing this, God said, that you may tell your children and that you may know that I am the Lord. You see, the Exodus was not just any old story. It was the story, the story that shaped the Israelites into the people of God. It was a story of their salvation. It was a true story, a story based on the facts of history. It was a story that explained everything the children of God needed to know. It explained who they were, the people of God, delivered from slavery. It explained who God was, the Lord God of Israel, the God of all power and glory. It explained where they came from out of Egypt. It told them where they were going into the land of promise. And it explained what their purpose was. They were saved for the honor and glory of God alone. Now, by sending his plagues against Pharaoh, God was giving his people a story that answered all the questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? And if there is, how can I know him? What does he want me to do? The story was so important that God wanted all his children to know it. Moses was to be the chief storyteller. When God said, tell your children in verse 2, he was speaking to Moses in the singular. As a prophet of God, it was his responsibility to tell God's people the story of salvation. And this was a responsibility that Moses took very, very seriously. 
There's a good example in Exodus 18 when Moses met Jethro. So Moses told Jethro the story of salvation and the story accomplished his purpose in Exodus 10, 9 through 11. It was a story that helped Jethro to know and to glorify God. Now, Moses did not stop with Jethro, of course, but recorded these events in the pages of the word of God. And as we study the book of Exodus, we sit at his feet, listening to our great-great-grandfather, so to speak, tell this old, old story of salvation. Now, Moses was not the only storyteller in Egypt. God's plan was for all the Israelites to glorify him by recounting their exodus from Egypt. And so when their children said, tell me a story, as children always do, they would tell them the story of their deliverance. And, and when their children wanted to know why they had kept all God's rules, they would tell it to them again in Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25. The story of salvation also became the song of salvation. Many Hebrew psalms referred to the Exodus in one way or another. Several of them, such as Psalm 78 and Psalm 105, make specific mention of the plagues. The purpose of all this storytelling was to enable the children of Israel to know God as their Lord and Savior and only King. The Israelites passed down the story of the Exodus not simply because it formed their national identity or even because it was part of a good education, but rather because it promoted the knowledge of God. The history of their escape from Egypt shaped their theology and their spirituality. Children learned the story in order to know their God. We too have a story. We have something to tell our children and our grandchildren. It is the story of Jesus Christ, the Moses of our salvation, who brought us out of Egypt of our sin. It is the true story based on the facts of history. Jesus' virgin birth, his virtuous life, his vicarious atonement, and his victorious resurrection. What a story that is. It explained everything a child really needs to know. It explains who we are, the people of God. It explains where we come from, a life of sin and misery. It explains where we're going, to live with Christ in mansions of glory. It explains who God is, the Father of mercy and love. And it explains why we're here, to glorify God by living for Christ alone. And so for those who know the story, there is no more important task than to tell it to others. The storytelling starts at home, where fathers and mothers have a duty to instruct their children in biblical truth. Children should learn Bible stories, not only at church and, and perhaps also at school, but especially at home. Any father not personally engaged in the spiritual instruction of his children is not doing his duty. Fathers and mothers who teach their children biblical theology are handing down a priceless treasure to them. And by telling the story that will shape their lives, they are passing on the legacy of salvation. The great Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper, 1837-1920, wrote, A church which does not teach her youth can never hope to retain a confession, but relinquishes it, cuts off all contact with the past, divorces herself from the fathers, and forms a new group. So if you desire to confess, you must learn, Kuyper says. Pharaoh was in no mood for stories. He, he had suffered a series of supernatural disasters, everything from rivers of blood to invasions of insects and amphibians. He could sense that though the Egyptians treated him like a god, the tide of public opinion was starting to turn against him in Exodus 10.7. Pharaoh's advisors were diplomats, and so they couched their language in very careful terms, identifying Moses as the main problem. What they were really doing was blaming Pharaoh for Egypt's troubles. They asked the same question that Moses asked, how long in verses 3? and 7. How long was it going to be before Pharaoh finally admitted that the God of Israel was the real deal and that any further attempt to resist his will was really utter folly? 
the royal court wanted Pharaoh to rethink his policy on Israel. They practically begged him to let the people of God go. Well, Pharaoh was starting to weaken. Like most politicians, he was vulnerable to public pressure. So he agreed to meet with Moses one more time in verse 8. Well, Pharaoh was very suspicious. Moses had been asking for permission to go and worship God. He, he never actually came right out and said that, that once the Hebrews left, they were never coming back. However, that was the impression Pharaoh was starting to get. And so before he granted any exit visas, he wanted to know just who would be going. The answer, of course, was they would all be going, as Moses himself says in verse 9 of our chapter. The prophet was clear. We will go. And when they left, the Israelites would take everything and everyone, all their people, all of their property. And as far as Pharaoh was concerned, this was really unreasonable. And he says this very sarcastically in verse 10 of our chapter. He, he was saying in his own way, look, Moses, I know what you're up to. And, and there's no way that I'm going to fall for it. If you let the Israelites go, he was saying then the Lord really would be with them. Here, Pharaoh's words were truer than he understood because he was never going to do it. To show how much he opposed, he was he was willing to free any slaves. He issued a threat. The words bent on evil can also be translated. Evil is in store for you, by the way. It was at this point that Pharaoh proposed a compromise. Nah, ha have only the men go and worship the Lord since that's what you've been asking for. Well, Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence of verse 11. Now, that's, that was not the first time that Pharaoh agreed to let God's people go, only to reconsider and then try to read negotiate after the fourth plague he said this in exodus 8 28 i will let you go to offer sacrifices to the lord your god in the desert but you must not go very far well this time he was willing to let them go as far as they wanted provided they left behind their women and their children in fact he would hold them hostage in order to guarantee that their husbands and fathers would return to egypt and, and this might seem like a reasonable offer right but pharaoh was making two false assumptions here one was that the women and the children didn't count. Pharaoh assumed that when it came to performing religious duties, men were the only ones who mattered. And if the Israelites wanted to worship, then why did everyone have to leave? Why not just let the men go and get it over with? Part, part of the answer, of course, was that God wanted freedom for all of his people. From the very beginning, uh, he told Pharaoh, let my people go. And that meant every single person. God wanted to give the Israelites something to tell their grandchildren, which they could only do if they took their children with them. But there was also an important spiritual principle to make. Worship is for the whole family, from the oldest to the youngest. God wants all his people to praise him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states in answer one that the chief end of man is to glorify God. This also happens to be the chief end of woman and the chief end of children, which is why it is necessary for Christians to worship together every man, woman, and child. Pharaoh's other false assumption was that he could bargain with God. And so here he's assuming that he and God were on more or less equal terms. And there he could negotiate from a position of strength. But there would be no compromise. God does not discuss his terms. He dictates the terms. What he demands in this case was nothing less than Pharaoh's unconditional surrender. It was all or nothing, which is why God was not impressed with Pharaoh's offer to let the men of Israel go. 
And the practical lesson that we must take from this is that we must take God on his own terms, not on our own terms. Discipleship is not open to discussion. When we repent and believe as in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we do not make a few concessions here and there. We surrender our whole lives to the Lordship of his will. And when God calls us to serve him, to stand up for Christ on the job, to exercise a ministry in the local church, or even to become a missionary, he does not invite us to enter another round of negotiations. He commands us to go where we are sent and to do as we are told. Now, when Pharaoh realized that negotiations had broken down, he he drove Moses and Aaron out of the palace. If he had been such a fool, he would have braced himself for another plague as we see in Exodus 10, 12-15. This plague was really something to tell the grandchildren. Scientists report that the daily consumption of a locust equals its own weight. That may not sound like much, however, a full-scale swarm covers several hundred square miles with between 100 and 200 million locusts per mile. John Davis writes, The locust is perhaps nature's most awesome example of the collective destructive power of a species. An adult locust weighs at a maximum two grams, and and its combined destructive force can leave thousands of people with famine for years. The Egyptians had never seen anything like this plague. They're never going to see anything like it again. Well, we know there have been other plagues, of course. Some are mentioned in the Bible, such an invasion of locusts in the book of Joel. Now, the wind blew out of the east, a rare occurrence indicating God's direct intervention, his sovereign rule over nature. Born by the wind, the locusts covered the land like a dark cloud, even hopping into people's homes. Their appetite was voracious. The crops had already been battered by the hail, so by the time the locusts were finished, there was nothing left. This would have caused an immediate food shortage, leading to famine and even starvation. And since the Egyptians were dependent on their agriculture, the mass invasion of locusts jeopardized their entire future. Pharaoh himself called it a deadly plague in verse 17 of our chapter. And yet, we also need to talk about how this was another humiliation for Egypt's gods. The Egyptians worshipped Min, the patron of crops. Min worshippers held an annual harvest festival, which may well coincided with the eighth plague. The Egyptians also worshipped Isis, the goddess of life, who prepared flax for clothing, Nepri, the god of grain, Anubis, the guardian of the fields, and Senishim, the divine protector against pests. They depended on all these gods to preserve their food supply. An inscription on the town of steel, which dates from the reign of Tarkuka, speaks of a fine field which the gods protected against grasshoppers. Well, not this time. This time the gods failed, and the Egyptians learned not to trust them for their daily bread, which only the God of Israel can provide. Well, what happened next was completely predictable in verses 16 through 17 of our chapter. Well, Pharaoh is still up to his old tricks once again. When things get desperate, he calls for a minister. Once again, he admits his wrongdoing. He confessed that he had sinned against God and and also against Moses, not against Israel though, presumably by not listening to him or perhaps by previously throwing him under the pal- out of the palace. Well, Pharaoh still wasn't ready to repent in a biblical way. He didn't confess his sins to God, but asked Moses, to intercede for him. He was still more concerned about the consequences of his sin than about the sin itself. His confession was a matter of practical expediency rather than deep spiritual conviction. It was a form of manipulation, another way of getting what he wanted. Pharaoh also seemed to think that this was the last time he would need to ever be forgiven. Literally, he said, forgive my sin only this once. 
He was still, in fact, minimizing his sin. He's pretending that he had never sinned before and never expecting never to sin again. And yet Pharaoh was a hardened sinner. And what he offered was a false confession that fell short of true repentance. Now, it's not surprising then that the plague of locusts ended like all the other plagues. Verse 20 of our chapter today says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. That's the trouble with Pharaoh. He kept repenting of his repentance. All he really wanted uh, was for God to side with him when he had a crisis. Who doesn't, right? But, but God is the only one on the side of those who actually turn away from their sin. Pharaoh hardly deserved to have his request granted. You see, God took away the deadly plague in verses 18 through 19, as we're told. The wind shifted, the locusts were drowned by the sea, and this was a preview of a coming destruction. For soon Pharaoh's army would be destroyed in exactly the same way, at at exactly the same place as we're going to see in Exodus 14. The locusts were a warning to Pharaoh. They, now, they also stand as a warning to us because like so many plagues from Exodus, they are a preview of the final tribulation that we're going to see in Revelation 9, 3 through 10. That will be a locust plague to end all locust plagues. It will be even more terrible uh, a plague on Egypt because rather than devouring plants, these locusts will torment everyone who does not belong to God. Is there any way to escape this terrible plague? Well, of course there is. The way to escape is to repent, humbling ourselves before God, praying for salvation in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Everyone who truly prays for forgiveness will be protected from the plague. King Solomon claimed this promise when he dedicated the temple and prayed in 1 Kings 8, 37-40. Well, darkness drove Pharaoh mad. God had already plagued him with blood, with frogs, with gnats, with flies, with pestilence, with disease, with hail, and locusts. But the ninth plague plunged Egypt into total, total darkness. For three old days, no one could see anything at all. Days of darkness would frighten anyone, but they held a special terror uh, for the Egyptians because they worshipped the sun. As Stephen Quirk notes in his study of ancient Egyptian religion, he says this, We need to understand the place of the sun in Egyptian civilization before we can begin to know anything about ancient Egypt. The, the Egyptians served Horus, the god of the sunrise, Aten, the god of the round midday sun, Atum, the god of the sunset. But the supreme deity in the national pantheon was Amon-Ra, who said, I am the great god who came into being of himself. He who creates his names, he who has no opponent among the gods. The Egyptians believed that this solar deity was their creator. The new God, they would sing in their great hymn to the sun disk. There is none beside him. You could mold the earth to your wish. You and you alone, all peoples, herds and flocks, all on earth that walk on legs, all on high that fly with their wings, they would sing. Every morning, the rising of the sun in the east reaffirmed the life-giving power of Amon-Ra. Sunset represented death in the underworld, but the rise of Amon Re offered the hope of resurrection. And so for the Egyptians, it was a matter of faith that the eternally rising sun could never be destroyed. And, and like most Egyptians, the Pharaoh was a sun worshiper. More than that, he was regarded as a son of Re, the personal embodiment of the solar deity. 
Egypt's king was Egypt's god. And as the incarnation of Amon Re, he maintained the cosmic order. Stephen Kirk writes, at the kernel of the civilization stands a special relation between the divine father figure of the sun god, ruler of creation, and his solitary offspring on earth, the reigning king of Egypt. This establishes the key relationship in creation between the sun god as the elder partner in the sky and his issue on the earth, the junior partner. Within the reign of each king, he alone appears as the living representative of the sun god on earth and enjoys a unique sovereignty in the practical exercise of power. Many ancient texts identified Pharaoh with the god, uh, gods of the sun. Pharaoh would pray, O living Aten, who initiates life, O soul god, without any other beside him, you create the earth according to your wish. You are in my heart, and there is none who knows you except your son. Or consider the following hymn praise to Pharaoh Amos. He has looked upon Ray when he rises, like the shining of Aten, like the rising of Capri at the sight of his rays on high, like Atom in the eastern sky. When, when Pharaoh Menep ascended the throne of Egypt, his loyal subjects sang, Be joyful, the entire land, good times have come. The Lord has ascended in all the lands, and Ordinless has gone down to its throne. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, lord of millions of years, great in kingship just like Re Amun, who overwhelms Egypt with festivals, the son of Re, who is more excellent than any king, Merib. And here is another example of the worship of the Egyptians offered to Pharaoh as a god of the sun. Re has placed the king on the earth for, of the living forever and eternity in order to judge humanity, to satisfy the gods, to make right happen, and to annihilate wrong, such that he gives divine offspring to the gods, funeral offerings in the, to the blessed dead. The name of the king is in the sky like that of Ra. He who lives like in joy like Re Hopor, and nobles rejoice when they see him. The populace gives him praise in the role of the child. The Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh as their god. In school, children were instructed to worship Pharaoh, living forever within your bodies and associate with his majesty in your hearts. He is Re, whose beams and one sees. He is the one who illuminates the two lands more than the sun disk. The Egyptians thus ascribed all majesty and eternity to Pharaoh. He was their illuminator, the lord of their hearts. And sometimes they even prayed to him, saying, Attend to me, a rising sun that illuminates the two lands with this comeliness, O solar disk of mankind that dispels darkness from Egypt. Thy nature is like unto thy father Ray, who arises in heaven. Now, what these Egyptian texts prove is that Egyptian worship was deeply offensive and an affront to the honor of the triune God. When Egyptians identified Pharaoh as a son of Amon-Re, they, they were worshiping a mortal man as the eternal God. And for his part, Pharaoh was claiming attributes and prerogatives that belonged to God alone. Pharaoh was an antichrist, a blasphemer, imposter, claiming to be the son of God. It's easy to assume that idolatry is a thing of the past, but how does the ninth plague apply to us today? In what ways are we tempted to worship Amon Re? Almost no one worships the sun anymore, and yet idolatry is still a real temptation. Somewhere around the third century, theologian Origen wrote, what each one honors before else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. By Origen's definition, we too are idol worshippers because there are many things that we honor, admire, and love instead of God. The question is, what do we love most? Who is our supreme deity? Like the ancient Egyptians, postmodern Americans, they have many gods, but our supreme identity seems to be self. We honor, we admire, we love ourselves more than anyone or anything else. 
uh, William Whitman's famous song of myself says, I celebrate myself and sing myself. The song of me rising from the bed and meeting the sun. Uh, divine am I inside and out and make holy I make holy whatever I touch if I worship one thing more than another it shall be my own body Whitman is the most American of all our poets we like to think of ourselves as a nation of rugged individualists and it's true we depend on our own abilities and admire our own accomplishments we even devote our all of our attention to making our own plans meeting our own needs serving our own interests satisfying our own pleasures we even complain about our own problems it's all about us we idolize ourselves well given the supremacy of god we know how this is going to turn out he he the lord is is not uh happy about what is happening here god saved the biggest defeat for last all god had to do was shut out the light as we see in verses 21 through 23 then it's dark the plague came unannounced it lasted for three days uh the land of perpetual sunshine was smothered by what the bible calls a dark darkness we can only imagine how dreadful this was to the Egyptians. When the sun is your God and the sun gets blotted out, you are left with only emptiness and dread. In fact, it's so dark, the Egyptians couldn't even light their homes. Now, the, pl the plague of darkness, it proved God's absolute power over creation. God can unmake what he has made. This is something that all the plagues show by reversing the six days of creation. The God who made the waters turn the Nile into blood. The God who made green sh things grows and destroyed vegetation with hail and locusts. The God who made creatures swim in the sea and swarm on dry land brought death to fish and frogs. The God who made men and beasts sent disease and even death. Finally, the God who brought light out of darkness made the light fade it black. In short, the plagues were a decreation. To make the connection explicit, Exodus often uses key vocabulary from Genesis. The point is, is that the sovereign God has the power of God to destroy. And so this darkness that fell over Egypt, it was physical, but also has a spiritual significance. And in scripture, darkness signifies error, ignorance, sin, rebellion, and death. Everything that is opposed to God. Proverbs 4.19 says, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. This is a result of sin. For Jesus said in John 3.19, men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Darkness dwells in the minds and the heart of sinners. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. To disobey God is to walk in darkness according to 1 John 1.6. The person who lives in darkness is destined to die in darkness. Job 18.18 says, He is driven from light into darkness and is banished from the world. Like all the other biblical texts, the ninth plague symbolized spiritual darkness. The darkness that spread from Pharaoh's hardened, darkened heart. The true condition, though, of Pharaoh's heart was revealed at the end of Exodus when he told Moses to get out of his face. An earlier statement in verse 24 is justice telling. This statement shows how much Pharaoh knew. He knew exactly what God wanted from him. He knew who had sent the darkness. He knew God's covenant name, Yahweh, our Lord. He knew that he was supposed to let the people of God go. He even knew the purpose for their exodus so the Israelites could go and worship God. Pharaoh knew all of this, and yet he refused it to to get it to let it happen. The heart of his darkness was his unwillingness to give God total control. 
Well, grudgingly, Farrell had been making more and more concessions. After the fourth plague, he said this in Exodus 8.25, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. Well, Pharaoh was willing to let the Israelites go to worship as long as they remained his personal slaves. To put this in spiritual terms, he was trying to convince them that they could worship and serve him and God at the same time. When Moses refused, Pharaoh said in Exodus 8.28, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Well, that's another temptation. Follow God into freedom, but stay close enough to run back into bondage. Pharaoh's next bargaining position was to allow the men to go, but not the women and children in verses 10 through 11 of our chapter day, as if the men of Israel would have left behind their families in slavery. And his final offer was to let all the Israelites go, provided they left their flocks and herds behind. Pharaoh intended to hold back their livestock hostage to guarantee Israel's return. He knew that they would not survive for long without food. Pharaoh was always holding something back. By insisting on his right to hold on to God's livestock, he was refusing to give up his sovereignty. He wanted to deal with God on his own terms. He wanted to stay in control. And so he only did what he absolutely had to do. But a heart that is not willing to go the whole way with God is a heart of darkness. Like Pharaoh, many people today bargain with God. They try to get him to lower his demands, his standards. That they'll say the sinner's prayer as long as they don't have to go to church every week. Or, or they'll go to church as long as they don't have to get baptized. Or they'll get baptized as long as they don't have to get involved in church. Or they'll give some of their time as long as they don't have to give any of their money. Or they'll give part of themselves to God as long as they don't have to give him everything. In short, they're willing to become Christians as long as they can still live for themselves. They imagine that there is some way for them to hold on to their sins and still get to heaven. But anyone who thinks this way has a heart of darkness. Salvation is only for those who walk by the light of the word of God. Now, the Israelites, they're not in dark here. This And this is part of the miracle. As he had done earlier in the place, God discriminated between his people and Pharaoh's people. In fact, Scripture explicitly states this in verse 23. All the Israelites had light in all the places in which they lived, referring to the whole land of Goshen, perhaps. The, the blackout only affected the Egyptians. Like darkness, light has significance. It represents truth. It represents beauty. It represents purity. Purity. And this symbolism runs throughout the whole Bible. First John 1 5 says God is light and in him there is no darkness. It also says that God's word is a light and a shining place in 2 Peter 1 19. And so when sinners are called to salvation, they are called out of darkness into his wondrous light in 1 Peter 2 9. You were once in darkness, the word of God says, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light according to Ephesians 5.8. The proof that the Israelites were children of the light was their unwillingness to make even the smallest compromise in their commitment to God. It must have been tempting to take Pharaoh up on his offer. He was ready to give Moses everything he asked for, but Moses uh, said they, they wanted to do burn offerings and to worship the Lord in verses 25 through 26 of our chapter. Moses is sometimes criticized for being uh, deceptive. His statement about not being sure how many animals they would need to sacrifice sounds disingenuous. After all, he had no intention of ever returning to Egypt. Some scholars think that the prophet was trying to pull a fast one. But this misses the spiritual significance of what he said. Moses knew, he understood that with God, it is all or nothing. And so he insisted that Pharaoh meet his demands. Moses was not negotiating. He was giving orders. Literally what he said to Pharaoh was, you will allow us to offer sacrifices. There could be no compromise. 
compromise. God had called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. It was not enough for God's people to worship God while they stayed in Egypt. It was not enough for the men to go without taking their families with them. It was not even enough for the people to go without also taking their possessions. God commanded Moses to bring everyone and everything, and that's what God demands. He demands every single thing. And so to come to Christ is declared there is there is no command we will not keep, no sin we will not forsake, no duty we will not perform, no talent we will not employ in our ambition to give all to the glory of God. And so this, what this chapter does is it shows the glory, the honor of God, but it also shows that that we should not delay in coming to Christ in salvation. God is calling us to leave the heart of darkness and to give our hearts to him. John eight twelve says this, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave, and we've looked at Exodus chapter 10. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.